Welcome to the NPS MedicineWise podcast, helping health professionals stay up to date with the latest news and evidence about medicines and medical tests. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Caroline West. I'm a GP and medical advisor for NPS MedicineWise. Around the world, health professionals are facing increasing demands on their time. Many chose medicine to help others, but somewhere along the way, exhaustion, disconnection, a feeling of a lack of accomplishment can creep in. Burnout is a global issue for health professionals with reports coming in from India to the UK and the USA. Not only is the cost high for the health professional with increased risk of depression and suicide, but patients can suffer too. Burnt out health professionals can make more mistakes, prescribe the wrong medications or doses and fail to arrange follow-up. So what can we do to turn this around? Joining us today is Associate Professor Lisa Lampy, who's a psychiatrist working at the School of Medicine and Public Health at the University of Newcastle. Lisa has a special interest in burnout and is researching the role that boundaries play in the mix. Her research is sponsored by the Avant Foundation. Thanks for being with us today, Lisa. Pleasure, Caroline. Thanks for having me along. Look, this is a fascinating topic. Can we just start off with the basics, though, perhaps? What exactly is burnout? It's an interesting question because uh, people don't entirely agree universally on what it is, but I think it's pretty generally accepted that it is arises in the context of prolonged and and chronic work stress of some sort, and it has a number of dimensions, one being exhaustion, which can be um, both physical or all of physical, emotional, and indeed even cognitive, something that used to be called depersonalisation, but is really now probably better thought of as an emotional detachment, cynicism about the whole job and maybe the organisation the person works for. And the third component is a sense of ineffectiveness or lack of accomplishment. So it's quite a complex syndrome. Mm. And as a health professional, would you be aware that you're actually suffering from burnout or is it one of those things that just creeps in gradually? I think it almost certainly creeps in for most people. And you can be experiencing one dimension more than another, which might also make it hard to recognise that perhaps you're you're actually now suffering from burnout. And a further complicating factor is that for doctors particularly, but I think probably for all health professionals, there's a, a culture of keep going no matter what. So people are reluctant to acknowledge that they're not managing very well and indeed might even see it as a kind of weakness. So I think probably most health professionals are now aware of burnout as a concept, but I'm not sure that they as readily make the connection with themselves personally. And sometimes the the scene is set during the training process, isn't it? If you look at the culture of health and you look at the way that junior practitioners, I'm thinking of junior doctors in particular, are overwhelmed often with the responsibilities at hand and the lack of support. Um, I guess it's not a surprise that they in particular are very vulnerable to burnout. 
Well, indeed, it starts in medical school. There's been a number of studies that um, have actually shown that that burnout is identifiable in medical school. And you've probably heard the term hidden curriculum. And that refers to all the things that aren't necessarily explicitly taught, but that we, we learn from our mentors and supervisors. So that includes that culture of, you know, work till you drop, go the extra mile, um, put yourself last. So medical students are learning that they are actually manifesting higher rates of burnout already as medical school progresses. And then that can reach very high levels in the intern year and indeed in um, specialist training. Mm, I think my first year as a doctor was probably the roughest I've ever had in that the rosters were just crazy and I just felt as though I didn't really know anything. And I was so exhausted because I was often doing night shift and then nobody turned up for the next shift. So you do another shift and I, I found it um, possibly the most challenging year of my professional life. And I just felt so alone as well. Um, it's it's fairly alarming to think that the culture hasn't shifted enormously and that junior doctors are, are still exposed to such, such a, a sort of onslaught. Well, I know some things have improved. I mean, you'd think that awareness has improved and the need for support has improved. But Simon Wilcock, who is uh, a prominent Australian researcher in this field, who's been um, researching this field for at least 15 years, I think, in an in a editorial not that many years ago in 2018 in the uh, Medical Journal of Australia noted that we really still haven't made any significant inroads on the stress that's associated with internships. So, uh, and I'd agree with you. I think it was probably the worst year of my career as well. Mm. And and so do do we know that the numbers of um, doctors and other health professionals do do we understand that the numbers are going up in terms of of burnout? Yes, it looks like the numbers are going up. There are um, there's a few studies that have repeated. Uh, burnout measures like the Maslach burnout inventory at um, two different time periods that um, have shown some increase in the prevalence of burnout symptoms. And that was pre-COVID. All the research that I've seen suggests that during COVID, those rates have really gone up significantly once again. Well, COVID has challenged everybody in the community, but frontline workers in particular had to bear the brunt of, you know, just, I guess, a pandemic that was seemingly, um, well, it was a very scary time and we didn't really know what the outcomes were going to be. We had a a group of people in the community who were fearful, anxious, often angry, and you had to wade your way through that. Yes, I think that's very relevant because there is some research that links Um, higher emotional expression from patients, negative uh, expression of negative emotions like um, anxiety, depression, anger with higher rates of burnout. So yes, doctors at the front line were also dealing with patients who were probably experiencing a lot more emotional turmoil than usual. And I guess the other factor to remember is it's been fairly unremitting for more than two years now. So there, there's sort of been no real let up in, in the demand, both emotionally and physically. And the interesting thing with the introduction of telehealth and access at all times is that that's been fantastic and very welcomed. 
But at the same time, it means it's harder to switch off as a clinician because you can always do one more consultation or you could always check one more batch of pathology. It's really hard to draw a line at the end of the day and say, oh, my work is done. I'm going home, especially when your mobile device has everything diverted to it. Yes, indeed. I mean, that it's much more difficult. And I, I would add that if you're trying to do clinical consultations by telehealth, there is an additional level of stress that's associated with that because you don't get all the usual cues that you would. And there's also some research showing that it generates a reasonable amount of anxiety in both the clinician and the patient about whether the technology is actually going to work. So there's, you know, all these extra layers of stress. And if we look at the bigger picture in terms of, I guess, from the clinician side of, of things, does personality of the health professional play into how they manage stress and how at risk they are for burnout? Yes. I mean, personality is known to be a very relevant factor, not just for burnout, but really for emotional well-being and indeed, to some extent, actually physical health as well. So we've known for a long time that if you look at the five-factor model, sometimes called the big five, which looks at what probably as doctors we might think of more as temperament rather than personality. So these are these are probably, uh, these are factors that have a fairly strong genetic contribution to them. Um, and they we all have uh, a, a point on each of these factors that where, where we sit, if you like. So it's a spectrum. And we know that people that are constitutionally or temperamentally high in emotional reactivity are more prone to anxiety and depression. We know that people that are higher on extroversion tend to be more resilient. So extroversion is actually a protective factor as is lower levels of emotional reactivity. So not unreactivity, which is not ideal either, but not being prone to get depressed and anxious about things, if that makes some sense. Yeah, it does. Um, it's a really interesting point. What about people that are perfectionistic? Because I guess there's this sense that a lot of health professionals are actually quite obsessive with their work and they're perfectionistic, which leads to good outcomes because they always want to make sure everything's done. But there's probably a flip side to that as well. Well, again, perfectionism is one of those uh, personality traits that we know can predispose to more stress, but also more anxiety and more depression. So again, not specific to burnout, but certainly a factor. I mean, one good thing about um, a trait like perfectionism, it is modifiable. You can learn to be, um, as Donald Winnicott said, good enough rather than perfect. But when you're striving for perfectionism, because it's essentially unattainable, it's almost like having a series of little failures every day, which can be quite demoralising. So being too obsessional, being over-conscientious, being perfectionistic, you know, it's all those extremes of the spectrum. So remember, you know, there's kind of a spectrum of what's um, where we all sit, but those extremes tend to be unhelpful. I really like that expression, Lisa, good enough. You know, that's, that's something I think that all of us could do with taking on board. Um, and if we look at actually what the cost is for, for a health professional, I mean, is, is burnout something that we can just sort of 
shrug off and go, okay, well, this is just the price of dealing with the health system and dealing with patients and all of the complexities that exist? Or, you know, what what is is the downside? Do we need to think about this in in terms of actually this has very serious consequences? Um, where, where do we sit with our thinking? Well, we really do need to take it seriously. In fact, it's been described as a crisis um, in some reports because it can have really uh, a number of flow-on consequences. I mean, firstly, the individual. Um, there's associations with depression, anxiety, and suicidal thinking. So that's, you know, a big cost. It's also um, some some aspects of burnout are particularly associated with giving away your medical career, deciding that it's, it's all too hard uh, and dropping out. And that is uh, a potentially a great loss for the individual, but also for society because educating doctors is expensive. Yes, I know people pay fees to study, but it only covers a, a proportion. And also there is a limit to the number of doctors that, that can be trained. So Every doctor that uh, takes place as a medical student, that's, you know, one less we can train. And if they're dropping out prematurely, uh, then we're not going to keep up with demand. So that's a problem for the whole of society. Other consequences you've mentioned, there are greater risks of, of errors, errors in um, decision making, which includes prescribing, but keeping records. And I guess quite apart from the risk of medical error, the patient experience is suboptimal. Rather than experiencing that engagement and that sense that the, the doctor is totally focused on them and their individual needs, it can be a very unsatisfying consultation where they're perhaps not sure that their specific needs were taken into account or they didn't feel like they had the doctor's full attention. So that can have a number of consequences. It can have, you know, patients can become disgruntled and put in complaints. But of course, at the same time, they can have a bad experience of that medical consultation, which might make them reluctant to seek the fear that the follow-up care that they need. So I think we recognise that the consequences are, are serious. The, the problem is we don't seem to have come very far in solutions. Mm, yeah, we'll, we'll We'll come to that because I think that that's something that everybody's curious to know about. You know, what can we do to to start to spin this around? I mean, you you've talked about how um, it, there can be serious consequences for the individual, and then also that the the patient really senses that there's not a great therapeutic alliance happening there. I mean, they're very clued into understanding that their practitioner has compassion fatigue. I think there are plenty of cues that you give off when you've just got nothing left in the tank. Um, mm. And uh, the other thing that I think is interesting from a practitioner's point of view is that um, the knock-on can be that that people self-soothe with things like drugs and alcohol. Relationships fall apart. You know, there's a social consequence and a context to, that extends beyond the work, the work day. Oh, indeed. It can take a very heavy toll um, in, in uh, in relationships and, as you say, in risk of, of using substances as well. So, um, yeah, that's right. There's a lot of additional costs. And, you know, you, you mentioned about, you know, mistakes are made and NPS Medicine Wise obviously has a very strong interest in the quality use of medicines. And I know that burnt-out doctors are way more likely to just prescribe the wrong stuff, give the wrong doses, doses, not follow up on pathology. Um I remember working with a, a colleague a long time ago who, and I always knew when they were struggling because their in-tray would just start to overflow 
you procrastinate. You think, oh, I just can't get around to writing those medical reports. You just put things off again and again and the tsunami of paperwork just gets on top of you. And it's it's quite a, a horrible feeling to feel as though you're sinking underneath the weight of all of these extra bits of red tape and... Well, indeed. And in fact, there's a recent study that has nominated uh, the increase in in, uh, bureaucracy around the practice of medicine as actually quite an important contributor to burnout, which is interesting. So um, all the, um, particularly I think in the United States where there's um, an awful lot of scrutiny or patient satisfaction, and that can actually have reimbursement consequences for doctors, uh, but also the advent of the electronic medical record. Um, these are all things that um, take more time and actually that time tends to come at the expense of the interaction with the patient. So the patient is less happy and really the doctor is less happy because most of us went into medicine because we like the interpersonal aspect of of helping people and working with patients. Mm. I, I'm really interested in your area of research, Lisa, because you're you're looking at burnout, but you're also looking at this very fascinating realm of boundaries and where it fits into the picture. Can you take me through what you're exploring there? Yes. Yeah, so we decided to look at boundaries uh, as a as a probably under-recognized contributor to burnout. And indeed there's a couple of studies that have sort of said, you know, is this kind of one of the pieces that hasn't been identified in terms of relevant factors for burnout? Now um, all health professionals and even our medical students are aware of the big ticket boundary violation items as I call them, things like sexual relationships with your patient, financial exploitation. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a rare occurrence. Very few doctors are going to uh, violate those sorts of boundaries. But what I think flies under the radar a lot and what we don't really get any explicit training in is more subtle kind of boundary challenges, I call them. And often they're not recognised as being relevant to our professional boundaries. So what is the professional boundary? Well, it's it's been defined as the kind of edge of appropriate clinical care. And I guess the guideline is, is this interaction I'm having with the patient required as part of their treatment? So if I'm making contact with them, if we're having a meeting, is this all confined to my role in providing medical care and advice to them? And stepping outside of that role, represents a potential boundary crossing. Now, a boundary violation is by definition harmful to the patient, but a boundary crossing may not necessarily cause harm. Um, Why would we worry about it? Well, because several, well, many authors now really have described a slippery slope that if I become more comfortable about crossing professional boundaries, so crossing into having a bit of a social relationship with a patient in person or on social media or um, something that is starting to to cross the therapeutic line, um, then that could start to lower my threshold for other types of boundary crossings that could put the patient at risk. Um, But the other type of boundary crossing occurs actually not with patients. These are things like corridor consultations, requests for advice from 
from medical or non-medical colleagues or requests from non-medical colleagues for a script to tide them over. Things that probably do make us a bit uncomfortable and can be a bit challenging to manage, but not something that probably rings alarm bells for us or and certainly not something that we actually get much training on. So I'm particularly interested, my team and I, we're particularly interested in the cumulative effect of all these little boundary challenges that we think are probably quite frequent. And the, the kind of interpersonal stress of having to negotiate these challenges could be a contributor to burnout. Mm. I mean, I think that most health professionals would have had that experience of being asked to 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 write a script. I was approached by somebody just yesterday. He said, oh, have you got your script pad with you? Could you just do me, you know, this script? And it was like, well, no, you actually need to see your GP. But they can be awkward conversations to have because the expectation is, oh, well, there's no skin off your nose to just quickly do this favour for me. Um, and people can have quite a strong response to you declining that and explaining, look, you really need to have it documented, you need to be examined and it needs to be done properly. Um, and people often don't respond to that um, as you'd like and then you have to sort of put up with that sort of emotional feedback which is tense and um, some people can even get a bit miffed, you know. Exactly right. And, mm. you know, as, as you said, I mean, this happened to you quite recently, these things, uh, we think they're very frequent indeed. And we think there's actually a whole range of different types of boundary challenges that, that happen. So, you know, clinical favours, um, being asked to maybe step outside your clinical role a bit and, and do something that is is um, changing the nature of the, the relationship. Um, those sorts of things um, can, can really be quite challenging to negotiate. Um, and we can fall into boundary challenges in other ways too. And this comes out of what we were talking about before, you know, the desire to, to kind of help people and go the extra mile. We can find ourselves kind of unwittingly getting painted into the corner of making somebody a, a special patient or a VIP because we feel sorry for them or their circumstances or we over-identify with them because they're a medical student or a busy colleague and we might do things that are outside our usual practice. So we have a consultation, but we do it after hours or we do it in a cafe near the hospital or the, the practice because it's more convenient. Um, and these are actually potential, these are, if you actually do that, it is a kind of a boundary crossing, in fact. So it raises the potential for, for harm. Now, the harm might not just be to the patient um, because as uh, our medical legal insurers po have pointed out repeatedly in a lot of their educational material, there's also the potential that that can be misconstrued by observers. Why are you meeting this person in this setting? Uh, what's going on here? Is, you know, are you grooming them? Is there some sort of special relationship? So, um, the other aspect of it is there is some research to suggest that we start to make less objective decisions when we 
treat people as special patients. Um, and of course, that's, you know, one of the recognised risks sometimes of dealing with medical colleagues as patients. Not that there's anything wrong in doing that. I mean, we have to, we have to treat each other, but we need to be particularly careful to keep it very clinical so that we maintain our objectivity. Yeah. So basically, you're saying that that there are harms potentially to the patient, there are harms to that individual as well, the individual practitioner. And, and then sort of pulling that back to burnout, what you're saying, if, I, if I'm hearing you right, is that these um, boundary crossings repeatedly incurred lead to, I guess, an emotional exhaustion or you're, you're constantly having to expend all of this energy and you're more at risk of burnout. What, what's the sort of link back there with the burnout? Well, we think it's actually the managing of the challenges. So not so much the crossing itself necessarily. The crossing may expose you to harm. And of course, that can be stressful depending on what what happens, what the consequences are. But um, actually deciding what to do in that situation is actually quite stressful. So the link with burnout is we know that I guess what's um, particular about burnout is it's really been described in contexts where there's a lot of interpersonal interaction, which is why it's so common in health professionals. So it's the interpersonal stress associated with having to decide how to respond to that request or how to deal with that situation where um, you're feeling particularly sorry for somebody and, and motivated to, to try to do something a little extra for them, but you know that that would be crossing the boundary. So you have to actually manage your own kind of emotional disappointment that you, or maybe even a sense of guilt that you should be doing more or you want to do more. So that's where we think the stress and therefore the relationship with burnout is coming in, in the stress that is caused by having to negotiate or find a way to manage these interpersonal stresses. Can we go to sort of a practical end for this and and really explore some of the language that we could possibly use around this? So obviously training would help us all if we if we at medical school were primed with this sense that you're going to have these difficult conversations, how are you going to navigate those? But if I just throw a couple of examples at you, Lisa, maybe you could give us some language around how we could start to think about it. So Say you're approached by somebody for a script. I mean, the one I get often asked is, oh, can you just give me an antibiotic script? I've got a cough, you know. This is somebody that I never normally see. Um, you know, they might be somebody in, in, a, in a local exercise group, somebody that I barely know. They're certainly not a patient, but they expect that I'll be able to deliver this for them. What would you say in that instance where somebody says, can you just give me this script? Well, I, I, unfortunately, I, there is probably not a solution that is going to have a totally happy ending because, um, as you said, there is probably a mismatch between expectations um, and what is reasonable to provide because the the wider implications of um, supplying a script are, are not appreciated by that individual. So, um, you know, I've seen various recommendations in the literature from just saying, look, um, sorry, but our code of conduct doesn't allow us to, to do that um, versus actually trying to explain um, why you're not comfortable doing that. Um, I suspect that no matter what answer you give, when it's a no, um, most people are not going to be very happy about it. And you see, 
that's part of the reason why it's stressful because it's it's a bit of a lose-lose situation um, dealing with, with those things. Um, depending on, you know, how potentially inappropriate the, the request is, some authors suggest not just hiding behind the, um, you know, it's against the rules because that could sort of imply that if the rules were different, you would do it rather than the fact that you agree that the rules are there for a reason and that reason is to protect both patients and, and doctors. Um, but you see, to me, context is quite important. If somebody is asking you something that is asking you to cross a boundary and you're sitting in your office and you've got a bit of time and private space to engage in a discussion around that, that's one thing. But somebody coming up to you after your aerobics class in a, in a busy corridor, I think that's a different context that may call for a, a different response. And maybe that's where the it's against the rules response is, is actually a lot more convenient. Yeah, I've, I've found since I've sort of held firm with having those boundaries that it's made it easier to be consistent. I think part of the stress used to creep in for me when I had to sort of make the call on a, you know, a, an individual basis about the merits of the argument that was being put forward about how I could help somebody out. And it's been much easier since I've just had a blanket. Actually, I don't prescribe prescribe scripts I'll do it for patients in the context of a consultation and I I will document a consultation so there's a record of what's happened and what medication you were given in case there's an issue um, and that makes me more comfortable but it's taken me quite a few years of medicine to get to that point where I can do it and and it still can be uncomfortable at times but I feel a lot safer feeling that I'm constantly sticking to guidelines that I've I've put in place around boundaries. Yes, and as you say, you've rehearsed it. Um, you've done it enough times now that it actually comes much more readily and um, more easily to you. And we were talking before about, you know, initiatives that might help. Um, and certainly some of the initiatives that have been trialled have been um, role play based um, providing scenarios. So, for example, there's some studies where they provide um, short video snippets of interactions that then stimulate discussion. Because the other thing about it is it's not black and white, particularly these more subtle boundary challenges. Um, they often have complexities and contextual factors. So the chance to have some discussion around it and potentially do role play, which rehearses a response that you might make, um, all those things are, are really useful. But I think you know, your, uh, your experience really does illustrate that something that you do consistently and repeatedly gets a lot easier to do and you feel more comfortable doing it as well. Mm, mm. And so just on the question of boundaries, another area that I wanted to dip into was really how you maintain boundaries when you live possibly in a rural or remote area with a very small community. I've been working in um, remote parts of Australia through the COVID times and some of the towns I've been in have had as few as seven people in them. Um, everybody knows everybody and it's kind of hard to sometimes have those boundaries in place because in a small country town you might be on the sports team with some of your patients, you might have family members that are all intermingling. Um, so how do you manage boundaries when you live in a very small community? Yes, I mean, that's a, a really 
important point and there's um, there's quite a lot of research that's been done in Australia on this actually and I guess it's managed in a number of ways. First of all, people that, um, practitioners that practice rurally and remotely um, recognise that it's just not possible to maintain as strict boundaries as um, is possible to do in larger metropolitan areas. So in practice, there tends to be a, um, a greater tolerance for having what's called dual relationships or multiple relationships, i.e. Um, I'm someone's doctor, but I also sit on the PNC with them um, and we're both a, a member of a netball club or, or whatever it might be. And um, when uh, rural health practitioners are um, interviewed about this, they generally have developed some strategies around it. So they might actually have a, a fairly clearly articulated policy that they can um, share with people uh, about how they're going to manage that. They might have a, a policy that varies a little bit from patient to patient on um, how those dual relationships will be managed. And not forgetting that a lot of patients manage it themselves by not seeing the local doctor about some particular issues. Um, we know, for example, particularly when it comes to psychological health, um, a lot of people are, are not that comfortable seeing the the uh, town doctor that they also, you know, see in the supermarket and, and uh, go, you know, their kids go to the same school and, and, and whatnot. So it's a, it's a more challenging situation. And uh, the smaller the area, the, the greater the likelihood that you're going to have these, these multiple relationships. Um, but it sounds like both the, um, the local population and the doctors that practice in those areas, and indeed psychologists, because there's been some studies done of psychologists as well, um, find pragmatic solutions to try to, to manage those boundaries, but also tolerate a little bit more boundary crossing. And so, how can we do better on this? Do you have Do you have a sense of a, a map we could be following that would improve this situation? I I think what always makes complex and ambiguous situations a little bit more um, comfortable to manage is some advance warning of them. If we are confronted with situations that we never anticipated then we end up having to think on our feet. And that's, you know, that's stressful and um, it might not lead to optimal ways of, of managing them. Although, as I mentioned before, I think it's important to bear in mind that some of these boundary challenges are just inherently uncomfortable and there's no solution that leaves everybody feeling happy and comfortable. But the more we've thought about them in advance, the more we've developed some policies around how we're going to manage them. And ideally, I think we've had a bit of a chance to maybe um, practice saying some of those things, um, then that all is going to make it easy. So easier, not easy. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely an initiative around education, but it needs to be education that's meaningful, probably not just going to a lecture on it. Um, one of the, at the University of Newcastle, our medical students do an MD research project now, which actually goes over two years. They spend the first year 
planning a project and, and the second year implementing it. And um, a group of students that I supervised chose to explore awareness of boundaries in medical students. And they compared first years, third years and, and final year, fifth year students in terms of their kind of confidence about managing certain situations that were portrayed in scenarios um, and also their views about whether it represented boundary crossings or not. But they also asked students what kind of educational initiatives um, would you find useful? And a lot of the feedback they got from that project was this sort of thing would be really helpful, you know, present scenarios and give us a chance to talk through them and, and discuss them. Um, in fact, an interesting scenario that they portrayed was um, having a senior consultant ask a medical student to run an errand for them. And it was very interesting that none of the students in the study identified that as a boundary crossing on the part of the consultant. Um, they varied in whether they would agree to run the errand or not. And the first years were more likely to agree to do it or said they were more likely to agree to do it than the fifth years. But nobody sort of said, well, this is not something I should be being asked. So I thought that was quite significant in itself. That's really fascinating. Um, you've, you've had a very interesting work life. You've worked as a psychiatrist. Now you're working as a researcher at university. Do you have any things that you've learnt along the way that have helped you on a personal level with preventing burnout or managing it or surviving a career in health and enjoying it? <laughs> yeah, look, I think, I think self-awareness is probably the most important Thing because if I'm if I'm not aware that I'm getting burnout, I can't do anything about it. And then you know, there's the risk that it will get worse. Um, there's certainly associations with depression. So I think taking I think good self awareness has been helpful, and then really taking a problem solving approach. The, thing that is wonderful about a medical career is you really don't have to leave it. You can take a different direction. Um, I took a different direction. I was doing um, fairly full-time clinical practice, both public and private, and I changed direction and after I had a break and I thought about things and then I actually took on a full-time academic role, which was partly based on a long-term love of teaching, but also a feeling that um, I was feeling a little bit burnt out and, and I needed to change direction. Um, the other thing that I think has driven my interest in this research is um, I hope the humility to acknowledge that I have not always managed boundary challenges well myself. I have found them stressful. Um, and I certainly think that there are times when I didn't manage them in a way that was probably optimal for either myself or the patient. And I'm not talking necessarily significant harms, but, you know, situations where I think it, it was stressful and, um, you know, I identify with that idea of wanting to do my best, um, you know, as much as I possibly can and wanting to help people. So um, I think perhaps personally thinking, gosh, it would have been nice to have had a bit more education about this, um, that that might have uh, made it easier is, is, you know, one of the drivers. And I think, you know, 
clinical research is often driven by our own clinical experiences. And I, I guess that's, you know, a similar case here as well. Mm. Well, thanks for sharing that because I know that as health professionals, we're sometimes not so great or comfortable when it comes to talking about our own experiences. Um, but I can relate to what you were talking about with that sense of moving in a slightly different direction. I started off as a clinician in HIV at a time in the 80s and 90s when it was really an incredibly challenging and sad time, really. And, um, you know, I got to the end of that and knew that I was burnt out and I zigzagged into media and and have spent my whole professional life building on my skills but sort of shifting slightly, you know, along the way and, and having a really rich and wonderful career as a result. But recognising that that um, I can get saturated and I I get exhausted and I have to do something that's a little different. And as I get older and wiser, I've I've learnt to pick up on that um, and and change tack when I can. And the other thing that I think has been highly protective with having a, a very long career in in health is um, that collegial support because I think professional loneliness is is a great contributor to burnout because you're not really sharing anything and. Certainly in general practice, although you're with people all day, you're often with patients all day. You're not necessarily with colleagues and sharing stuff with colleagues. And I think that if you 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 have some professional alliances where you can genuinely be yourself and and talk about what's going on can can make such a huge difference. Uh, you know, absolutely, because that um, that social aspect of um, of our lives, both in terms of um, collegiate relationships. Working in uh, working with other doctors and health professionals, but also good social relationships, they are protective factors. So I, you know, I think that that's actually really important that we we know that that is one of the protective factors. I mean, we can identify a number of factors that that can be protective, but um, that's not the same as saying we know how to intervene and and kind of fix burnout when it's happened, but. The sooner you recognise it and 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 do some things that work for you, I think that's the other thing. Is probably what works for one person isn't automatically going to work for somebody else because we do differ in our personality and our um, effective coping strategies. But knowing when it's time to maybe get some distance, think through things, have a bit of a break. I don't think doctors take enough breaks. No, especially through COVID, none of us have had holidays. It's terrible. <laughs> but um, look, it's it's been a really fascinating conversation, Lisa. I've I've certainly, um, I'll certainly go away with a lot to think about there because it's it's a very interesting topic, and I think it's very relevant to where we're at, at the moment with with healthcare, especially with the challenges of COVID and a changing landscape. Um, if I'm able to mention, um, our study is ongoing. Um, we're doing it by means of a, a online anonymous survey, um, trying to find out about people's experiences with, with boundary challenges. Um, anyone who is interested in finding out a bit more about it can go to our website, which is boundariesresearch.com.au. Fantastic. Well, hopefully some of our listeners will follow that link and participate. That's all we have time for today. Thank you once again, Professor Lisa Lampy, for your time today. And it's been great to hear about how boundaries may influence our risk of burnout and what we do to ensure that we preserve boundaries where possible. And if you'd like any more information on any 
of the material that we've covered today, please go to our website, nps.org.au. Professor Lisa Lampy has declared in her conflict of interest statement that her boundaries and burnout work is sponsored by the Avant Foundation. If you'd like more information on CPD points, follow the links on our website. I'm Dr. Caroline West. Bye for now. For more information about the safe and wise use of medicines, visit the NPS MedicineWise website at nps.org.au.